Welcome to the Thrive Church Podcast. Listen anytime you miss a service or want to hear a message again from our Sunday worship services and select special services. Lead Pastor Brian Bauer, as well as guest speakers, will bring messages that will help you encounter God, love people. Join us for virtual service on Facebook Live at Encounter Thrive. Or for those comfortable, we'd love to have you for our in-person services Sundays at 10. To learn about us, what we believe, how to connect, how to give, or how to find us, visit the all-new EncounterThrive.com. And now, here is our message. Jesse, the youth director here, but he is our district youth director. So Chris, would you join me on stage really quick? The first time I saw or met Chris uh, was at Momentum a few years ago. And the immediate thing that came to mind was this guy's got a heart for ministry, specifically to the youth in America. And I know his heart breaks at the attacks that are leveled against our kids all the time. Um, but also, as he stands next to me, you can definitely tell he works out. He's one of the few guys that can stand next to Tony, and you can say that too. <laughs> there you go. Um, so, Chris Stanley, uh, just thank you so much for leading our youth. It has meant a lot to us and our church. I know every time we go to Momentum, to Breakaway, it just it breaks their heart for Christ, and I love that. I can't wait to hear what you've got to share with us today. Well, thank you so much. Uh, it's an absolute honor to be here with you today. Uh, my name's Chris. Uh, my wife, Christina, uh, made the drive with me this morning. Uh, we're originally, I'm originally from Chicago on the south side. My wife is from Michigan. Uh, but now we live in beautiful, scenic Carlinville, Illinois. <laughs> it's where your students go to camp. And uh, we actually live on the campgrounds. Uh, that is not as awesome as you think it would be. Uh, <laughs> but it's, it's fun and we love it. And, uh, you know, uh, we have three children uh, that decided to go to their home church this morning uh, after we told them what time we were waking up and driving this morning. Uh, our 16-year-old Caleb, our 13-year-old daughter Chloe, and our 11-year-old son Corbin were like, yeah, have a great time driving <laughs> early in the morning. We're going to sleep in and we're going to go to our own church uh, this morning. So they're at their own church down at Cornerstone in Bethalto, uh, but it's absolutely amazing to be here on Youth Sunday. I'm honored to have been asked, and let me just go ahead and say this really quickly, and I hope you don't find this too ham-fisted or cheesy, but I just, I love your pastors here. I love them so much. I love Pastor Brian and Angela. I, I just think that they're absolutely amazing people, and the first time that I talked to, to Pastor Brian I remember we just had a conversation on the phone, and uh, he reminds me so much of one of my best friends whose name is Jeff, just the way he talks and the way that he carries himself, and I immediately connected with Pastor Brian because he's just so down to earth, um, and I love that. I love that in a man of God. I love that in a pastor, and not only that, but I got to tell you, he's, just, he's a phenomenal communicator. I love when he talks, and I love when he uh, just shares wisdom uh, he's a good man, and he's a good friend, and I love him dearly. You are blessed with an amazing pastor. Amen? And I'm not just saying that because, like, they invited me in. It's like, like I don't do that at every church I go to. <laughs> Can I say that out loud? Is that okay? Um, like, I, I love your pastor so much, and I'm honored to be here on, on Youth Sunday. Um, you know, growing up on the south side of Chicago, uh, it was fun. My family wasn't wealthy, like, at all. Um, I, I, I had five older brothers, um, 
<clears throat> and I was the youngest of, of six boys. Has, has anybody in here, like, have you ever grown up in a because I said so house? Anybody in this place, like, right now? Just show me your hand. I grew up in a because I said so house. And if you're raising your hand, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Now, my mother, uh, child number one, I'm sure she was patient. I'm sure that she was kind. I'm sure that she showed a lot of deference, and I'm sure that she was willing to negotiate. Child number two, three, son number four, five. But by the time it got to me, I don't know, I feel like she was just worn out. She's done explaining herself. She's done talking about why I can't do what I cannot do. Her answer was simply, because I said so. That's why, Chris. Hey, Mom, can I go head down to the gas station and get my... No, why? Because I said so. Mom, do you mind if I hang out with my friends a little bit later tonight? No, why? Because I said so. And you know that your mother, especially if she has raised all of those boys, if she said because she says so, she means it, right? And I got to tell you, church, like, it, it was fun for me to grow up in that house, but sometimes it wasn't so fun because by the time my mother got to me, she would just walk in the prophetic. You know what I mean? Like being the youngest in the household, and if you're a youngest child, you may understand this. Like, my mom knew what I was going to do before I even thought that I was going to do it. And it was frustrating. (laughs) She's like, I know what you're thinking, and if you're not thinking it, you're about to. And let me just warn you right now that if you try it, I will have you, right? It will be over. It will be done before you even think about it. You know, when I, when I think about the next generation and how we're supposed to raise the next generation, um, I, I, I think about Paul's relationship with Timothy. I, I think about how Timothy would follow Paul around and how Paul would mentor him. But in God's word, you don't see a whole lot of specific instruction to Timothy until you get to the end of Paul's life in some of the letters that he is writing to Timothy. And one of the scriptures that I want to start out with this, this morning is found in 2 Timothy chapter 3. The name of my message today is called Devotion for the Next Generation. And if we're going to be here at, on Youth Sunday, I want to just have a conversation about our devotion for the next generation. Notice that I am not saying devotion to the next generation. And although that is important, I am saying that the most important gift that we can give the next generation is actually our devotion to God for the next generation. I want you to watch Paul's interaction with Timothy here at the end of Paul's life. When Paul is writing this letter to his young disciple, Paul is again unjustly imprisoned. And Paul probably knows that he is heading towards his own execution. And so Paul is going to impart some final wisdom to Timothy, who is now either the elder or a pastor at a church that Paul has planted in Ephesus. And this is what Paul is going to say to Timothy. In fact, if you are reading out of the NLT, the ESV, or the NIV, you will see that there is a heading that says Paul's charge or Paul's final charge to Timothy. Listen to these words. But you, Timothy, you certainly know what I teach and how I live and what my purpose in life is. 
You know my faith, you know my patience, you know my love, and you know my endurance. You know how much persecution and suffering that I have endured. You know all about how I was persecuted in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. But the Lord rescued me from all of it. Yes, and everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. He goes on to say this in verse 14. Listen to this, it's fascinating. He says, but Timothy, you must remain faithful to the things you have been taught because you know they are true. Why do you know that they are true? Because you can trust the ones who taught you. Because you can trust the ones who taught you. You know, it's, it's funny to me because Paul is having a because I said so moment with Timothy, but not before he lived a life of devotion in front of Timothy. And when it comes to challenging and when it comes to leading the next generation, our devotion to God for the next generation matters because after spending so many years working in youth ministry and working with the next generation, I am telling you, family, that there can be no disconnect between what we say about God and how we live for God. There is a generation that is coming up behind us and they have like military grade like lie detectors and inauthentic detectors in their life. They don't care what you say, but they are certainly watching how you live and they are seeing if it works. I find it fascinating that before Paul even tells Timothy, you can trust what I am telling you Why? Because you can trust me that he lists out all of the things that Timothy witnessed Paul go through. He witnessed Paul go through persecution. He witnessed Paul getting thrown into prison and beaten. He knows about the assassination attempts that have been on Paul's life. He knows about what Paul gave up in order to pursue Christ. And here he is getting a letter from Paul while he is unjustly imprisoned again. And Paul is saying, Timothy, it's worth it. And Timothy, what is he going to do? Is he going to walk away from the faith? Absolutely not. He is going to continue on in the faith and he is going to carry the mantle. Church, if we want the next generation to carry the mantle, they have to see that it's worth it. And they will not see that it's worth it unless we are living the life that is worthy of God's calling on us first. In Deuteronomy, it's very specific. If you were to read Deuteronomy chapter 6, It's actually after Deuteronomy chapter 5 where the Ten Commandments are. We move into Deuteronomy chapter 6. And that's where you can actually find an Old Testament teaching, a Jewish teaching called the Shema. Now, depending on what part of the country you're from, you might call it the Shema or the Shema, right? But it's actually pronounced the Shema. And it's, it's it's very well known. In fact, I'll start saying it to you. I, O Israel, I, the Lord, your God, am one. You shall worship me with all of your heart, soul, and strength. Not mind yet. Jesus adds mind in the New Testament. 
but you must worship me with everything that you are. Isn't it funny that when God gives directions to his children in Israel about leading up the next generation, that he starts with their relationship first. He requires Israel before they start instructing their their children to actually live the life. Today, I want to talk to us all about having devotion for the next generation. Let me just start us off in prayer before we get into the actual message. And you're like, that wasn't the actual message? No, come on, we're at an AG church. I'm Pentecostal. We're going to preach all up and down today, all right? Father, we just love you so much. And we are so thankful, God, for the next generation. God, they are so full of potential. You have wired them for such a time as this. God, we pray right now that you would just use us to be ambassadors of Christ to the next generation, that we would walk as you have walked, that we would try to live as you have lived, Father God, not being models of perfection, but God being models of pursuit because you are worth it. God, I pray right now that your favor would rest upon us and that you would be able to mantle the next generation from our relationship with you, God. We love you with all of our hearts, with all of our minds, with all of our soul, and with all of our strength. And God, I pray that it would be an overflow to the next generation. We love them. We believe in them, oh God. In your name we pray. Amen. 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 You know, today we're going to be taking a look in the book of Acts. But before we get into the book of Acts, quick Bible quiz time. Does anybody in here know who wrote the book of Acts? Luke, right? Luke. In fact, a lot of people would say that Paul wrote most of the New Testament, which is true in in one sense. He wrote most of the books in the New Testament, but actually most of the content, most of the words in the New Testament were written by Luke. In fact, I love Luke. I I actually would tell you that, that, that Luke is quickly becoming one of my very favorite authors in the Word of God. And here's why. It's not that he's It's not just that he's intelligent, it's that he's also incredibly intentional with the way that he writes things. Luke is thoughtful, and Luke is also thought-provoking. And we see that all over his gospel and in the book of Acts. Now, an example of Luke's intelligence and his intentionality while he is writing is his constant use of philosophical juxtaposition. That's a real mouthful, right? So let me break down what what that means. Luke is going to take things that are seemingly on opposite ends of various spectrums, and what he's going to do is he is going to smash them together in Scripture so that his readers can compare and contrast different ideas. And the reason that Luke is going to do this is on purpose. Why? Because Luke understood his audience. Does anybody know who Luke wrote his gospel and mailed it to. Luke was written to a Greek audience. The Gospel of Luke was actually written in a high structure of Greek. It was intended to strengthen the faith of Greek-speaking Christians that were steeped in a Hellenistic culture that actually really prided itself on schools of thought and philosophy. When Luke writes his Gospel to these people... He doesn't just want to tell them about Jesus. He wants them to see Jesus. 
He wants them to come to an understanding of Jesus with their philosophical minds as well. He wants them to perceive who Christ is. He actually is so brilliant in this because when he puts this type of writing forward, he knows that the gospel that he writes is then going to be contagious. People are going to want to speak about it. People are going to want to sit down in small groups and debate the gospel with one another. That's why Luke is so brilliant in understanding his audience. Here's an example of some of his uses of juxtaposition just in the Gospels. In Luke chapter 7, Luke is going to tell the story of a Roman official in Capernaum whose servant was healed by Jesus, and then he's going to launch right into a story of a widow whose child was raised from the dead in a small, know-nothing town of Nain. Now, why is Luke doing this? First, you have this Roman official who has got power, who has got authority, and who has got clout. He's got prestige. And when he comes to Jesus needing something, Jesus is going to say, absolutely. And then he's going to launch right into a story of a widow who isn't even named, who comes from a backwoods town. She has no power. She has no authority. She has no clout. And when she comes to Jesus, Jesus is going to say, of course. Why is Luke writing that? Because Without saying it, he wants you to perceive that Jesus is just. That's Luke's style of writing. Luke is going to take the Beatitudes and he's going to smash them together in chapter 6 with the woes. Why is he going to do that? Matthew doesn't do that. Matthew separates them by like a million chapters. Why? Blessed are the persecuted. Woe to you, who, woe to you Pharisees. Who persecute. So without coming right out and saying it, Luke just allowed his Greek audience to perceive with their philosophical minds again that Jesus cares. Luke is a master at creating this type of tension in Scripture. I absolutely love reading through the Gospel of Luke and through Acts because he does this all of the time. And I'm not going to bring up all of them because I want you to start discovering them when you go home and read the Bible for yourself. There's two moments, though, that I want to talk about that are smashed together in Acts chapter 19. I'm doing a little bit of setup work here because I want to paint a picture of devotion. I want to paint a picture of devotion that I think is so important for each and every single one of us to get, family. I want to paint a picture of devotion for you because I think if we can look at this story in Acts chapter 19, I think that we can start to grasp with our minds what it's actually going to take to model a relationship with Jesus Christ to the next generation. These are two moments that seem like they don't have a ton to do with each other, except that they both happened in Ephesus, and they are both part of the origin story of the church that was planted there. But because Luke is the author, but because Luke is the author, it's important for us to look at what's being said and what is being shown as well. Ready? Let's dive in. The story we're going to be reading is found in Acts chapter 19, 8 through 16. And it says this. This is in the city of Ephesus. Paul's going to arrive on the scene. And then what is he going to do? Paul went to the synagogue and he preached boldly for the next three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. 
but some became stubborn, rejecting his message and publicly speaking against the way. So Paul left the synagogue and he took the believers with him. Then he held daily discussions at the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for the next two years so that people throughout the province of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. God gave Paul the power to perform unusual miracles. When handkerchiefs or aprons that had merely touched his skin were placed on sick people, they were healed of their diseases and evil spirits were expelled. Okay, now Luke is going to give us some whiplash here. He's he's right in the middle of the story and now he's just going to shift the spotlight. Watch this. A group of Jews was traveling from town to town casting out evil spirits. They tried to use the name of the Lord Jesus in their incantation saying, I command you in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, to come out. Seven sons of Siva, a leading priest, were doing this. But one time when they tried it, the evil spirits replied, I know Jesus. I know Paul. Who are you? Then the man with the evil spirit leaped on them, overpowered the seven sons, and attacked them with such violence that they fled from the house naked and battered. Okay, now, church, uh, five older brothers growing up on the south side of Chicago, I've been in a scrap or two in my life. I have never been beaten out of my clothing. You know what I'm saying? Like, if we have any, if we have any people who, who have, like, who were fighters in their life. Maybe you were a wrestler. Maybe you just had family. Maybe you were just a scrapper growing up. I am pretty confident that nobody in my audience, I haven't found one yet, has been beaten out of their clothes. If you get beaten up so badly that you are like naked at the end of that altercation, you are now a pacifist for the rest of your life. Right? You're done. You're done fighting because that's a soul wound, isn't it? Like, man, I'm done. And yet, here we see that this is what happens to these seven sons. But before we elaborate on that, I want to go back and I want to just explain some things. Because in the first moment here, Luke places the spotlight on Paul and what Paul is doing. This is Paul. Paul, who at this moment in his life is on his third missionary journey. He's an experienced missionary. He knows precisely what he is doing. He has an action plan. And not only does he have an action plan, but this is such a man of devotion and faith to still be going after all he has endured. If this is his third missionary journey, then at this moment, Paul has already been whipped with 39 lashes Five times. Jesus was whipped with 39 lashes and the cat nine tails. Paul has endured this without the cat nine tails five times. It's one or two whip lashings short of a death sentence. Paul has been beaten with rods three times. Paul has endured a stoning so bad that he was thought to be dead and he was dragged outside of city gates only to wake up and keep spreading the gospel. 
Paul, at this point, has been unjustly thrown in prison over and over and over and over again. Paul has been chased by angry mobs. He has had assassination attempts on his life. Paul, at this point, has been shipwrecked twice. And right after he leaves Ephesus, he's going to get on another boat. Like, okay, if I'm shipwrecked twice, I'm not getting on a boat again. I'm walking. I'm getting on a horse. Like, at some point, you know, it's like, like you're just not good with boats, right? Paul, who is now in Ephesus, even after all of this, and he is going to continue to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. And again, what I believe Luke is trying to do here is paint a picture of devotion. Look at this with me. Life in Ephesus, if you were ever to study, actually has some pretty interesting facts. Ephesus would have been the fourth largest city in the known world at the time. This isn't some throwback community. This is a huge, huge city. People would wake up in the morning. They had a little bit of a different schedule than you and I have here in modern America. They would wake up at about 6 o'clock in the morning. And from 6 o'clock in the morning to about 11 o'clock in the morning, they would go and do business. They would work at their trade. They would go to the marketplace. They would try to make money for their life and for their family. Then from 11 o'clock to 4 o'clock, that's when they would actually do life together. So you would see the people of Ephesus stop what they are doing, and they would actually come together. Maybe they would just sit and eat lunch with their families. It was their most important meal of the day. A lot of people would actually go, and they would either go to synagogue or they would go to the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Now, the lecture hall of Tyrannus was a really big deal at this time, especially in Ephesus. It was like old school Netflix. You would go into the lecture hall of Tyrannus and you would just kind of watch your favorite speaker or you would listen to your favorite philosopher. Paul would have used the money that he would make creating tents or making tents in the countryside to rent out some space at the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Paul quickly became the city of Ephesus' favorite speaker at the lecture hall. So they would start binge-watching Paul and listening to him. He actually outgrew the lecture hall of Tyrannus, so he had to go out to the countryside. Here's a really interesting thing to know. Did you know that Ephesus was one of the seats of one of the ancient wonders of the world? It was actually the home of the Temple of Diana or Artemis, depending on Greek or Roman leanings. This was one of the largest temples that was in existence at this time. Again, it was one of the wonders of the ancient world. And so you would have people making pilgrimages to Ephesus to sacrifice or worship at the temple of Diana. But Jesus would interrupt their plans and the Holy Spirit would draw them to Paul and Paul would preach the gospel at the lecture hall of Tyrannus and these people would be converted. That's when stuff started happening that was absolutely crazy. So people would now, instead of worshiping Diana, they become worshipers of Jesus Christ. They're going out to the countryside and miracles start breaking forth. People start throwing their books of witchcraft and burning them on fires. People are being miraculously healed. 
by a handkerchief or an apron that merely touched Paul's skin and was laid on people and they were miraculously healed and demons would be cast out. Now let me explain the handkerchief and the apron really quickly. This wasn't some little hanky that Paul kept when he was preaching. The handkerchief was actually a headband that Paul would wrap around his head while he was making tents in the countryside to keep his hair and to keep sweat from getting into his eyes. The apron would have been a thick apron that he would have used and worn so that he wasn't bludgeoning himself or cutting himself while he was sharpening stakes or hammering things out or cutting the heavy canvas in order to make these tents so that he could pay to be a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm saying all of this to say that the anointing of God didn't rest on some hanky or some piece of clothing. The anointing rested on Paul's devotion. So that's why when you see some snake oil salesman evangelist on television trying to sell you some anointed handkerchief, that ain't it. That ain't it. That's false. That is not true. The anointing was on Paul's life, not on some piece of clothing. And so here you have Paul, who had this intimacy, who held loosely to the things of the world. He considered it loss in order to gain Jesus Christ. You have Paul, who didn't allow the culture to shift him, but he was the one who was shifting the culture. The anointing wasn't hanging on some clothing. The anointing was on Paul's devotion. People are being set free. People are being healed. The socioeconomic structure of Ephesus is being turned on its head. And in the middle of all of this, in the middle of all of this action, in the middle of all of these miracles, the author, Luke, is just like, let's put a pin in that and talk about the seven sons. And it's important to ask, like, why? I don't want to hear about the seven sons getting beaten naked. I want to hear more about what Paul's doing. Why aren't you talking about Paul anymore? Like, he's the hero. Could you imagine, like, going and watching a Marvel movie, and then it just shifts to, like, some street vendor to tell his story instead? I'm like, I didn't come to the theater to watch the street vendor. I wanted to watch Captain America. This is nuts. What are you doing, Luke? But he's intentional, isn't he? There's something that's going on behind, behind Luke's thinking and why he shifts gears here. And I think it's important for us to grasp. Again, why is he stacking these stories? What is the comparison that is being alluded to? What is the juxtaposition that Luke is trying to show us? What tension is Luke trying to create for his readers? Verse 13 There was a group of Jews that was traveling from town to town, casting out evil spirits. They tried to use the name of the Lord Jesus in their incantation, saying, I command you in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, to come out. Seven sons of Siva, a leading priest, were doing this. But one time when they tried it, the evil spirit replied, I know Jesus. I know Paul. But who are you? Then the man with the evil spirit leaped on them, overpowered them, and attacked them with such violence that they fled from the house naked and battered. Wow! 
that is a totally different result from what Paul is seeing, isn't it, church? Let me suggest that if Luke is trying to paint a picture of devotion in Paul, is it possible that he is comparing this with what is only an appearance of devotion in the seven sons? I think it's fair to say that the sons were devoted to their position and their fancy title and having a following. I think it's fair to say that the seven sons were devoted to having power and having a nice little fancy lifestyle. I think it's fair to say that the sons were devoted to their craft and their appearance. But was there an intimacy with God in the seven sons? I don't think so. I don't think it's a stretch to go there either. Listen to the demonic reply. Jesus, we know. The word for know here in the Greek is hinosko. That means that there is an intimate knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. And not only is there an intimate knowledge, there is a fear of the authority and a recognition of the power of God. The demons know and they tremble at the name of Jesus. Even in the demonic reply using the word kinosko, you could have actually saw a trembling in the reply. Jesus, we know. Paul, we know. The word for know here is different. And this is why I think it's important for us to understand and dive deeper in our studies with God's Word. It's not just know and know. It's know hinosko, but the word for know here is epistemai. And that means we are acquainted with Paul. We know of Paul because he is so closely attached to Jesus. We are hearing about Paul in the spiritual realms. Why are we hearing about Paul? Because everywhere he goes, Jesus is taking over. We know about Paul because his name precedes him because he is so devoted to God. We are acquainted with Paul because Paul is so close to Jesus. We know of Paul because we know of Jesus. And wherever Paul is, there's Jesus. But you, we don't know you. Isn't that fascinating? We don't fear you. Like, like they're saying, we recognize and we fear the authority of Jesus. We recognize the authority of Paul. But you, there's no authority. There's no anointing. There's no intimacy. There's no devotion. You are pretenders and hell has no idea who you are. My youngest son, Corbin, when he was much younger, he's way too cool for this now because he's an 11-year-old who has everything figured out in life like we all did at 11. My son, Corbin, I mean, my wife will tell you right now, she's already smiling at me, loved to play dress-up. I mean, like, he would watch his favorite superhero shows. He would watch, like, Batman. He would watch, like, Power Rangers or something. And then right when he was done, he would have to go and put on the outfit. Like, he would dress up. He would find a stick, like boys tend to do, and he would start killing everything in the house. The plants were dead. The dog was dead. Everything. The couches were dead. The furniture. Ah, Ninja Corbin. 
all the way through and through because he was just hyped up after watching his favorite show. I remember one time I had a cup of coffee in my hand and it was fresh and it was good and it was delicious and it was from the Lord. But it was a hot cup of coffee and Corbin comes running right at me, right, with the sword. And I have this cup of coffee in hand, so I did what any dad would do. I stuck my foot out and I dropped him. (laughs) Right? I just put him on the ground. Okay, and for some of you who are worried in this moment, I loved him. I picked him up. I I let him get me afterwards. But I didn't want to spill coffee on him, so I just chose the lesser of two evils. Am I going to let the kid get scalded, or am I just going to kick him on the floor real quick? So I, I kicked him. Don't call the hotline on me. You've all done it, all right? You had to smack a kid's hand away from fire. You've had to do something, wrench him away from a street. So after booting my son... It just came to me like he was just a kid in a costume pretending to be something that he wasn't. He was really no threat to me. I think sometimes in the church, we come to church on a Sunday morning or students go to an event or we go to some conference and then we go out there and we continue living the life but we're still wearing the mask and we wonder why we're no threat to hell. If there's no devotion, if there's no intimacy, then hell will not fear you either, family. And the next generation will not see victory after victory after victory and moving from glory to glory. They'll just see you moving from service to service and still dealing with the same crud you deal with all of the time in between the moments at the altar. And that is not how you are supposed to live. And please understand that I am not out here preaching that we are to be perfect and victorious in everything because I get that we're going to stumble. I get that we are going to fall. As a father, I am not trying to show my children a model of perfection, but I certainly am trying to show them a model of pursuit. After the demons tell the seven sons, we have no idea who you are, They attack them. They physically overcome the seven sons. The demon physically overcomes the seven sons and beats them so violently that they fled the house naked. Okay, I'm the weird one who did a word study on naked. So you didn't have to, right? You're welcome. Um, And the reason I did that wasn't because I was a weirdo. I was just, I was actually really curious Like, why would the demon strip these men? What was the point in it? Was it just humiliation? And the word here for naked, my dad's from Kentucky, so he didn't say naked, he said naked, right? They weren't naked, right? They weren't like cheeks running out of the house. Like, they were actually stripped of their outer garments. The word for naked here was hymnos, where we would get the word gymnasium or gymnastic, they were actually just left in their undergarments or in their underwear. Isn't it fascinating that the demons stripped off only their priestly garments and left these pretenders with what the world gave them and not what God mantled them with? Isn't that fascinating They weren't nude. The text actually implies that their priestly garments were stripped and what was underneath is what was exposed in that moment. 
Let's chat. What's underneath our title? What's underneath our position? What is underneath our talent? If there isn't a devotion to Jesus, if there isn't an intimacy with Christ, how long do you think it will be until you are exposed just like the sons were, church? Like, what does your relationship with Jesus look like when nobody is watching? Parents, is church the only place that your kids get to experience you praying and worshiping? The sons had decoration. They had their priestly garments. They had their title. They had their following. They attended the ministry school of a leading priest. And I think it's easy for us to just hide behind decoration as well. Back in the day, it would be our Sunday school pins and our perfect church attendance record. We decorate our churches. We have the lights. We have the sound systems. And listen, there's nothing in the world that is wrong with that. But devotion has to exist in the midst of it all. Or else it's just a show. And I think sometimes the modern church can get so hung up on the decoration that we forget to have the devotion. Man, does it look good? Does it look tight? Is it excellent? Those are all great questions. But is it anointed? Is it authentic? Is it a product of God? Or is it a product of man? I am not knocking decoration. If you were to read through the book of Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, Moses employed some of the most skilled craftsmen in the world to build the things that God instructed him to build. Excellence matters, but without devotion, it's a mimic of something the world can already do, and that is not going to impress the next generation. Mimics aren't movements. The sons had declaration. This is one that I want us to pay attention to. The seven sons of Siva looked at the demon-possessed man and said, in the name of Jesus. We are always taught that there is authority in the name of Jesus. And of course there is authority in the name of Jesus. The demons actually responded to the name of Jesus with fear and trembling. However, because there was no Jesus in the seven sons, they had to respond to Jesus, but they didn't have to respond to the seven sons. Do you see that? They recognized the disconnect, and that's why there was no divine protection over the seven sons. Instead, they were just exposed. They were just exposed. They were just left out. I mean, I grew up in a Pentecostal Assembly of God church, man, like you were told when you were praying over something, you say in the name of Jesus. If you're casting out a demon, you say in the name of Jesus. And, and I, like, man, listen, I was so Assemblies of God that like if that didn't work, you had to add on of Nazareth. Just in case the demons were confused about who you were talking about. In the name of Jesus, of Nazareth, come out, be healed. Have joy. Fill in the blank. That's great. But words without devotion do not threaten hell. It doesn't. And just like words without devotion do not threaten hell, words without devotion do not impress the next generation in all of the spiritual warfare that they are going through. They see you. 
They see the decoration. They hear the declaration. But where is the devotion? They had the decoration. They had the declaration. But there was no devotion. And because of that, they were exposed. If you go back to 2 Timothy where we started off. You read Paul's words again, and now I think after everything that we just talked about, they should carry a little bit more weight, right? Because Paul is trying to inspire Timothy, who is representative of the next generation of great church leaders in the early church. And Paul is going to say to Timothy, You see what I've gone through. You know what I've gone through. This is how I want you to live, Timothy. And not just because I say so, but because I've done it. Timothy, you can trust the things that you've been taught because you can trust the ones who have taught you. Church, May we be able to say to the next generation, students, teenagers, millennials, Gen Z, Gen Alpha, you can trust the things that we're teaching you in church. You can trust the things that we're teaching you in youth group. You can trust the things that we're teaching you when we just have these conversations with you. Why? Because you can trust the ones who have taught you. You can look at our lives and you can know with certainty that there is devotion there. I'm not saying that it was always easy, but my life has been so full of joy and purpose. I can look you dead in the eyes, next generation, just like Paul to Timothy, and say it's worth it. That is the kind of church we need to lead the next generation. It's what they're looking for. Church, we can have a whole bunch of opinions. But a person with an experience is never at the mercy of a person with an opinion. I want these students to see your lived experiences. I want them to see your devotion. I want them to see you loving God with all of your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. And from that, there is an overflow and a motivation and favor upon your life that is pouring into the next generation. They will see and they will realize. And even if it's not at first, even if there's some prodigals, they will realize what they have left and they will return because God loves them and He's going to woo them back to the church. Sometimes He's going to use your example. I love what it says in Ephesians 2, 10. It says that, We are God's masterpiece. Now when God looks at us, He's going to point at our life as an example to future generations about what the goodness and the glory and the grace of God actually looks like. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. We hope this message spoke to you and helped you grow in your knowledge of and love for God. Visit us online anytime at EncounterThrive.com and reach out with questions, prayer requests, or comments. We hope to see you for our in-person services in Lockport, Illinois, Sundays at 10.
So long.